are. We're going to look at uh, chapter 26 in the book of Matthew, verses 47 through 75. As we uh, come up to Easter, we've been basically just looking at the last uh, 24 hours of Jesus' life according to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was one of the followers of Jesus, and he wrote down his experience, his story, uh, and it's found uh, in, the, in the book called the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to look at Jesus' arrest. And so we've looked at uh, the Last Supper. Jesus had this last grand meal with his disciples, and they celebrated the Passover meal. And at that meal, Jesus warned that one of his group was going to betray him, and that happened to be Judas, and Judas uh, head, headed off before dinner was done. And then Jesus took the 12 out to, or the 11, out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he asked that they would pray with him. Uh, because Jesus said, you disciples are going to be tempted to turn your back on me. You're going to be tempted to run away because something's coming down the pike. You need to pray. Uh, Jesus himself went to pray because Jesus knew that the cross was coming. That temptation was coming towards Jesus. Temptation was coming towards his 11 disciples. And Jesus said, you need to be in prayer. Uh, prayer gives us strength to fight the, the battles that we face in life. And so this is where we pick it up. And so while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. Well, with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And so remember Judas uh, went to the, the, the religious leaders and said, how much money would you give me? to show you where Jesus is going to be, and we'll, we'll, we'll give him over to you. And he did it for 30 pieces of silver. And so he agreed, and so he takes this armed group of, group of men who were sent by the religious leaders, and they come up to find Jesus. And uh, it says, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And the reason they probably needed a signal is because this, this group of armed men uh, wouldn't necessarily be able to pick out Jesus. It was dark. Plus, it was Passover time, the, the Mount of Olives. There would be people camping all over. There would be other groups of people around. But Judas knew where Jesus would be because the Bible said they would often go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Judas had spent about three years with Jesus and could pick him out like that. And so uh, he says, I got this, this signal. When you see me kiss this guy, that's a signal. Now, this might seem awkward in our culture, you know, kissing another guy. Uh, but it was just, just the way they, they would greet people back then. Uh, in fact, they still do that in Israel today. In fact, a lot of places in the world today, when I, I go see some of my uh, relatives in New York, they always kiss me on the cheek, and it's kind of weird, because uh, we don't necessarily do that, or we shake a hand, or give each other a hug or something, but it was just kind of like uh, the way they would greet each other. It was nothing real special. But Judah said, I'm just going to kiss this one person, and that's the one you're going to arrest. So going at once to Jesus, uh, Judah says, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, again, Judas, as we pointed out before, uses the word rabbi. All the other disciples throughout the, the Gospels are always using, when, when talking to Jesus, they use the word Lord. Uh, they saw Jesus as Lord, as the one who, who is the Messiah, the Savior, the one that would rescue them. Judas, we see, is used, again, the word rabbi. Now, Judas could not bring himself to a place to see Jesus as Lord. Uh, just as a teacher, just as a, a regular guy, another person, the word rabbi means teacher. And so he gives the signal. And then Jesus replied to him, do what you came for, friend. And this word friend, if you look at the Greek, is, is uh, at least the way Matthew uses it, 
is not like talking about a close friend, but uh, every time Matthew uses this term friend, it's always used in the context of a friend who abuses the relationship. And so Jesus kind of uses it sarcastically because Judas here is about to betray Jesus. Uh, Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, and and the Gospel of John says it was Peter. Uh, So Peter reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, uh, cutting off his ear. And and sometimes we we picture this, you know, poor, helpless servant uh, and his ear getting cut off. I mean, getting your ear cut off would not be fun. But uh, this was not some poor, helpless servant. Uh, Servants in those days, or slaves is actually the word here. Uh, had positions of very high prominence. Uh, Slaves could be doctors, they could be lawyer-type figures, they could be uh, heads of households, and this is probably the guy who was in charge of the arresting party. He was the one who was coming on behalf of the high priest. Peter sees who's in charge. You're not going to arrest my Jesus. (laughs) Remember last week what he said? Even if everyone leaves you, I won't. I'm willing to lay down my life for you, Jesus. I would die for you. And so G- Peter stands up and says, you're not going to take my Jesus, and chops off his ear, or at least cuts it. And then Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. And I'm sure that was very shocking to Jesus. Because uh, Peter's just thinking, you know, this is, this is not good. You can't arrest Jesus. You're coming with armed clubs and swords, and we're going to retaliate with the sword. And, and Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. In fact, it's interesting in the Gospel of Luke. It says that Jesus touched the man's ear and healed him. I mean, right in the middle of this chaos, as he's about to be arrested, Peter swings his sword, blood's pouring, the ears hanging there or whatever, and Jesus does this miracle and heals this guy's ear. And this is Jesus really practicing what he preached. Remember that he taught that we are to love our enemies and do good to them. I mean... Uh, Jesus had every reason to say, yeah, Peter, you get them. They're coming to arrest me. They're going to crucify me. You get them. Good, let's cut off everybody else's ear. And let's do it. Let's get all our swords and let's attack and let's, you know, be violent and let's do that. And, And yet Jesus says, no, that's not what we do. We love our enemies and we do good to them. And so Jesus takes this this person who's about to arrest him and just bring him to be crucified and actually heals his ear. And I just wonder what this guy's story was from this point on. And we don't know. Uh, Maybe he became a disciple. Maybe he continued to betray Jesus as Judas did. We don't know. But this is a valuable lesson because there are people, probably in all of our lives, where we just like, I just want to get them. I don't want to take out my sword and chop off their ears and gouge out their eyes. And maybe not literally, but I want to just kind of think those things because this person just ticks me off. And that's not the way of a Jesus follower. The way of a Jesus follower is to do love to your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you and to be kind and to not take revenge and to leave justice in terms of revenge in the, in the hands of God. And so uh, uh, Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. Uh, there's a good example of, of someone who really lived this out and uh, it's kind of a famous story of a guy named Dirk Williams. He was, he was an Anabaptist, which... Uh, after the Reformation, between the Catholics and the Protestant, there was a group called the Anabaptists. And they were, in a sense, pacifists. They were people who believed in a nonviolent Christianity. 
He also believed in uh, that you shouldn't baptize babies, but only adults. And because of it, they were persecuted by both the Protestants and the Catholics, killed a lot of the Anabaptists for some of their, their theological stances. And uh, we talked about it a few weeks ago about the messiness of church history and how it doesn't look anything like what Jesus taught. And this is one of those cases. But he was arrested by the Roman Catholics, and he was in prison, and he managed to, like, tie clothes and his bed sheets together, and he made this little rope, and he got out the window, and he goes over the moat because it was winter and it's frozen, and he starts running away, and a guard sees him. And uh, he uh, continues running away, and they cross over this pond. And he was really light because he hadn't been be- being fed well, and he runs across the f- pond. He makes it, but the guard, the soldier who's trying to catch him, falls through the ice, and, and he knows he, this guy can't swim, and he's going to die, so he's just calling out for help. And Dirk Williams had a choice. Uh, this guy wants to kill me. He, he's my enemy, in a sense. I could either save his life, or I could save my life, and I could keep running. And because he understood that what Jesus taught, that you love your enemies and you do good to them, he stopped, went back, he pulled this guy out from the ice, and, of course, the soldier, because if he didn't do his duty, would have been killed, rearrested Dirk Williams, and eventually Dirk was uh, burned uh, at the stake because of his beliefs in, in, in adult-only baptism and a nonviolent way of Christianity. But, but someone who really lived that out, and this is what Jesus calls us to live out, that we, even if it's ex- extreme cases, would, would love our enemies and do good to them. And this is what Jesus taught. Now, of course, this text here uh, becomes a bit of a controversial text, and we'll talk about this in a second. But Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. If you live by violence, you're going to experience violence, Jesus says. Do you think that I uh, cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And a legion was 12,000 angels, so that's in total 72,000 angels. And Jesus says, do you think I need you to defend me with a sword? When at any moment I could call 72,000 angels to come and rescue me. But again, Jesus knew this was his plan. This was his mission to go to the cross to take upon himself all the sin of the world so that we might experience ultimate forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Uh, But he says, I can call all these angels, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that says it must happen this way? Now, when Jesus said this, there was no New Testament, hadn't been written. So he's talking about the Old Testament, and he's saying the scriptures say this must happen this way. Well, where is that in the Old Testament? Well, Uh, Isaiah 53, it's a wonderful chapter, speaking about what Jesus went through. It says, surely Jesus took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions or our sin. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And through him, we experience all kinds of healing. And we experience freedom and grace and mercy and and deliverance uh, from our sin. And that's found in Jesus. Now, the controversial part about this is this. Put your sword back in its place. And Jesus says, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And we have, within Christianity, various opinions on what Jesus 
means here, and, and this verse is kind of one of the core texts. In other words, some Christians believe that uh, Jesus says here, put away the sword. In other words, Christians should never, ever take part in anything dealing with the sword or violence. That those who wield the sword are going to die by the sword, and sometimes we call those pacifists. Uh, most Christians who hold that category would be called, they would call themselves nonviolent Christians. Others will say that there is a place for violence, justified violence or justified war. And they would point to this verse to say, well, Jesus didn't say throw away your sword. He said put it back in its place. In other words, you can use it again, maybe at another time. And so there's this, this difference within Christianity. And we have uh, some whole denominations that take like a pacifist stance, like the Brethren and the Mennonites and, and others and many uh, non-denominational groups. And so we have these three groups, and I just want to briefly just uh, highlight them so you know sort of the breadth of Christianity here dealing with this text. So we have one group, which is sort of the pacifist or non-violent position. And they would say that no violence is ever justified by a follower of Christ. Uh, that there should be no weapons, no swords, no fighting, no retaliation, no beating up people, no fight. It is no violence, that there is no place for this in Christianity where Jesus said, those who pick up the sword are going to die by the sword. When Peter tried to bring violence, Jesus said, no, put your sword back in its place. And one of the key texts that they use, or I should say, that this seemed to be actually the dominant position of the church for the first 300 years, though there was the other position as well. We see a lot of the early church fathers uh, making statements about this. For instance, uh, Justin Martyr said, we refrain from making war on our enemies. And we cannot bear to see a man killed, even if killed justly. Or Clement of Alexandria was very, very strong on this. He said, he who holds the sword must cast it away, and that if one of the faithful becomes a soldier, he must be rejected by the church, for he has scorned God. And so very extreme uh, pacifist positions. Again, many of them held that in the early church until around 400 A.D. when when uh, Augustine, as we talked about a few weeks ago, came in with the idea that maybe we can actually convert people through violence, which is just not Christian at all. Uh, but one of the main texts of the nonviolent positions is Matthew 5. And Jesus said it this way. You have heard the, the law, that's the old way, the old covenant, that says punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, this is the new way, this is the Jesus way, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. And uh, this culturally was different than what we think. When you think of like, you know, someone punching you in the face, it was, it was an insult. I mean, today we might call someone a nasty word. Uh, back then, if you wanted to call someone something nasty, you'd slap them in the cheek, right? And it was insult. So he's saying... If someone insults you, you don't insult them back. If someone, you know, fights you, you don't, you don't fight them back. Uh, you, you, um, you don't resist an evil person. And he goes on, and he says, if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. 
who gives us sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there uh, for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. And so Jesus' call to love our enemies, to bless them, uh, to just go the extra mile that if someone slaps us or insults us, we don't insult back. And, and these people would say, this is the way of Jesus. You don't see anywhere in Jesus' teachings, the teaching about violence. You don't see anywhere in the teachings of Jesus about, you know, beating people up or killing people. Say, this is the way of Christianity. So this is one group, that's sort of more pacifist, nonviolent. Now, there's another group in Christianity, which is sort of more in the middle. And they would say, uh, they would agree with the nonviolent stance of Christianity, that we as individuals should never act violently, uh, that we should never retaliate. But they would say, you may uh, have to use violence if you're in an official position. And they would use the book of Romans, uh, which says this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that, ex- uh, that exist have been established by God. In other words, God puts in governments for certain reasons to control violence and sin. And then it says, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And they would say that if you're a believer and a Christian or a police officer, a believer, and you're in the army, that because you're part of this ruling official, then there may be a place for those people to use just violence because they're part of the sort of the government. But as individuals, Christians, we we should never go there. That's sort of the middle stance. And then there's the other group that would say, uh, even as individuals, there may be a time for just war or just violence. And they would say that violence is sometimes justified, but must be a last resort. And they will usually look to this verse in Luke 22, where it says, as Jesus speaking, take your money and a traveler's bag. And if you do not have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. See, Jesus said, buy a sword, they will say. Uh, but the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among the rebels. Yes, everything written about me by the prophets will come true. Look, Lord, they replied, this is his disciples, we have two swords among us. And Jesus said, that's enough. And so uh, this group will say, well, Jesus allowed the disciples to carry swords. And the reason you would carry swords in those days is because when you were traveling from town to town, you'd run into bandits and robbers, and you'd use them for self-defense and to protect yourself. So it seems they would say that Jesus is saying that that self-defense or a certain amount of violence may be necessary in certain cases. Pacifists will say, well, that's not really what Jesus is saying. They would say that this is actually a prophecy about Jesus being counted among the rebels, and rebels carried swords, and so it's about fulfilled prophecy, not the ways of Christian, and on and on and on the debate goes. And uh, usually the one side will say to the pacifist, well, what about Hitler, and what about if someone breaks into your house and starts beating up your family, you're just going to sit there and do nothing? And the pacifists will say, well, it's not like do nothing and kill someone. There's lots of other nonviolent options in between. You need to look at those. And so this is one of those friendly debates within the tribe of Jesus followers. And so maybe something you want to talk about in your small groups or life groups about what you think about this. But that text is kind of the heart of this debate. All right, it goes on. 
Uh, in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, again, the arresting crowd was there. The disciples are there. There's probably other people around watching what's going on because it's Passover. He says, am I leading a rebellion? And that word kind of means the idea of being a terrorist. Am I a terrorist? That you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. So what is this? This is unfair, he's saying. I was in, in public all the time. You never did anything. But now when I'm out in the dark, you're coming to arrest me. And, and earlier we, we saw that the reason they didn't arrest Jesus in the temple, because they knew a riot would start, because um, they wanted Jesus to capture him secretly, So because a lot of people were liking Jesus. And then he says, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And so this prophecy Jesus gave about to his disciples, all of you are going to desert, desert me. And they said, no way. We're never going to leave you, Jesus. You are our friend. You are our buddy. We've been here for three years. It comes true. When Jesus needs his friends the most, they, they desert him. They leave him alone to be arrested. And maybe you've had this experience in your life. That when you've needed your spouse the most or your friends the most, that they just have, they're not, they're not there. They've deserted you and left you alone. And, and this is where Jesus finds strength in God. And, and, and you can find strength in God as well when you are left, left alone. So those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. And this is like his court case. But Peter followed him at a distance. So Peter was kind of like staying behind. Kind of he wanted, he wanted to know what was going on because Peter would have been very confused. Because everybody's hopes, probably including the disciples, about the Messiah was that he was going to come in, uh, kick out the Romans, uh, take charge, and be this military political figure. And this is why Peter made, took out the sword. Let's go. Let's get started on this. And now he's arrested. Uh, Jesus said, put back my sword. And Peter was probably very, very confused. But he's trying to figure out what's going on. And he goes right up to the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. And this would have been a big house. There's probably a courtyard in the middle. And he could kind of see what was going on. Now what's interesting is uh, Caiaphas, the high priest is actually uh, archaeologically we have found his ossuary that uh, this, this stories in the Bible aren't just made up the people in the Bible aren't just invented uh, but these are true people uh, in 1990 they were building a park and they found this this uh, this tomb and in there they found this Caiaphas's bone box and this is what an ossuary was they would they'd actually bury the whole body in the tomb for about a year and after it decomposed, they take all the bones and they would stick them in a box. And uh, they've actually found Caiaphas's bone box. I mean, uh, there has never been an archaeological find that has ever contradicted the Bible. In fact, Christian and non-Christian archaeologists uh, use the Bible to help them in archaeology. And there, a lot of the other holy books out there, archaeology has found numerous problems with the writings, but never the Bible. And it just testifies to fact that this is stuff that we can trust well the chief priest and the whole sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against jesus so they could put him to death now the jews themselves uh, weren't allowed to kill anybody weren't allowed to put anybody to death 
So what they needed was some evidence they could bring to the Romans. Because only the Romans could actually crucify someone or kill somebody. The Jews were not allowed. So they had to try to find some evidence that they could bring to the Romans and say, look, this guy is worthy of death. And so they're trying to figure it out. But it says they didn't find any. Though many false witnesses came forward. Uh, Finally, two came forward. And what's important about the two is courts back then, uh, any single witness did not count. You always had to have two people who gave a similar story for it to count. And finally, they found two with a similar story. And they said that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And they're like, maybe this will do. Jesus saying he can destroy the temple that was built by the Romans for the Jews. Maybe that's enough. We could take that to the Romans and, and they can kill him for that. Now, Jesus actually didn't say that quite. In John chapter 2, the story is, it says, The Jews then responded to him, What signs can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And so that was the testimony. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body, that Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple, but his own body, that he's gonna, it would be destroyed and, and raised again. But this was the testimony. Hey, this Jesus said he can destroy the whole temple. And then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Could have defended himself. Could have said, oh, that's not quite what I meant. But Jesus goes very courageously towards the cross. I mean, in the garden, he was like, Father, if there's any way out of this, is it possible? If there's any way, uh, please, I just want this cup to pass me. But now he is courageously facing the most horrific event. I mean, how can you move to a place where like, I want out of this to a place where you're just boldly going forth. It was his prayer. Again, maybe it's pray that you don't fall into temptation. Jesus was praying in the garden, and now he is strengthened to face the most horrific thing. And if you're facing a hard week or you're facing hard issues in your family, you've got to get on your face before God, and you will experience his strength and courage building in you as it was in Jesus. So then the high priest tries another method because Jesus didn't answer that question. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And this one, Jesus answered. He, uh, he said, you have said so. In other words, you're right on. You're exactly right. I am the Messiah. But then he says to them, but I say to all of you that they know what you think of a Messiah, but I'm much more than what you're thinking of the Messiah. This is what kind of Messiah I am. And he says this, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And we're going to see that the high priest gets totally ticked off at this. He rips his clothes. He's angry. Like, I mean, why did he get so mad? is because they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was saying that I am the guy from Daniel 7. And this passage relates perfectly. In Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision that says this. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. And this is the title Jesus used of myself. I am this guy. 
coming with the clouds of heaven. That's what Jesus said. And this night of the clouds of heaven is not like his return, but it's talking about his, his glory and his might and his power and his sovereignty. He approached the ancients of days. He was God. And he was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus says, that's the kind of Messiah I am. That's who I am. Now, as we've been saying the last couple weeks, either Jesus was telling the truth, or he was crazy, or he was lying. The only options. I mean, I mean, is Jesus really this kind of Messiah, the one that all the peoples are going to worship him, and he has everlasting power and dominion? I mean, if Jesus is who he says he is, then that's exactly who he is. You can't just take part of Jesus. I mean, either he's lying, crazy, or he is Lord, and he is sovereign and glorious and beautiful, and his teachings are for life, and that's what you'll find out when you begin to experience Jesus. Now, this ticked off the high priest. Says, then the high priest tore his clothes. In fact, in Leviticus, it says to the high priest that high priests are never to tear their clothes. But he's so mad, you know what anger does? It kind of, you blow all the rules sometimes. He blows his own rules. And he says, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they, they all say, he is worthy of death. death they answered. Then they spit in his face. And struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? And if you are this sovereign, mighty person, I mean, who's hitting you? Who's whacking? And they begin his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion, which we will look into more next week. But this Peter, who was following close behind, says, now Peter was out in the courtyard. He's watching what's going on. He's hearing what's going on. Everybody's kind of trying to figure out what's going on. And a little servant girl came to him, and he says, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. Uh, but he denied it before all of them. I don't know what you're talking about. And just, I mean, it wasn't a soldier who came up to him. It wasn't like the court official. It was just this little servant girl, and, and, and Peter's caving. I mean, earlier he said, I will never desert you. I would die for you. And now this little servant girl causes him to cave in. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, and so he, he tries to go away from him and hides a little bit in the corner, but he's spotted again. This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth, and he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. That would be like, I swear to God, I do not know the man. Not Lord. It's not even rabbi as Judas talked. Now it's it's man he's just some guy i don't know who that guy is and after a little while those standing there went up to peter and said surely you are one of them your accent gives you away then he began to call down curses that is if i'm lying god smite me and god kill me if i'm lying and he swore to them again god i'm telling you the truth i don't know the man and the other gospel says at this point Jesus actually looks right at Peter, and Peter looks at Jesus, and then immediately a rooster crowed, because uh, Jesus earlier had said, Peter, before this night is over, uh, you're going to deny me, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me, and Jesus said, uh, Peter said, no way, that's not happening, but it does. 
Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. I mean, just imagine how broken he would have been. In a matter of hours, he goes from the glorious dinner of the Passover with all his disciples to celebrating Jesus and, and their hope of the kingdom in the future. And he's like, I'm, gonna, I'm never going to deny you. I'm going to stand for you strong. Now he's completely denied Jesus. He's fled, and he's just, just a wreck, and he's just crying on the ground. You know, sometimes we look at Peter and say, Man, how could you do that? How could you do that, Peter? When you were with Jesus, and you just totally deserted him, and you're not calling him the Lord, you're calling him just a man, and, and you're just, you're just you're, why would you do that kind of thing? But the reality is we do the same thing. I mean, whenever we fail to love Jesus and love people the way Jesus wants us to, in essence, we're doing the same thing. I mean, if you have a big juicy piece of gossip about somebody, and you're like, Man, I really want to share this because I'm going to look like really important and, and, and uh, I don't really like that person anyways, but I, I just want to share this because I can't hold it in. And, and the Spirit whispers to you, don't. Don't because Jesus is Lord of your life and he says love people, not hurt people. Love people. And if you decide to share that gospel, you're in assessment saying, Jesus, you're not Lord right now. I am. Or my pride is. Because you told me not to share. You're just a man. You're just a rabbi. I'm Lord in this situation. And, and we're denying him. Or if there's someone who, uh, I mean, has hurt you, and you just have bitterness or unforgiveness towards them, and Jesus says, you forgive because God has forgiven you. you. You get rid of that bitterness and allow the peace of God to enter in you. And if you keep holding on to that unforgiveness and bitterness, you're basically saying, Jesus, you're not Lord. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're talking about because I want to do my own thing. You're just a man. You do my own thing. I mean, whenever we fall short of loving Jesus, loving people, we're, we're in the same category. So don't be too hard on Peter. In fact, it's even more weighty for us because Peter had no idea what was really going on with his death and resurrection. He was still thinking conquering Messiah. This is, this is a mess in my mind. We know who Jesus is. We know about his death. We know about his resurrection. We know about filling of the Spirit. I mean, when we deny Jesus, it's even in a sense worse than what happened with Peter. But here's the thing. There is so much grace flowing from Jesus upon us, even in our mistakes. Uh, Peter would weep bitterly. He would repent, but he would be restored back to Jesus. Peter would become one of the strongest church leaders, the leader of the early church in Jerusalem, because Jesus is a restoring Jesus. I mean, when you fall, it's not the end of the story. And maybe this week you've had a hard week. Maybe you've really messed up in loving Jesus and loving people, and you're just like, I'm just a horrible Christian. I can't do anything right. I keep trying. I keep messing up. I don't think Jesus likes me anymore because I'm so horrible. I tell you, Jesus loves you even when you're messy and even when I'm messy because his grace is bigger. That's exactly why he went to the cross for the worst of sinners like you and me. And if you just return to him and lift your heart up to him, you will experience the forgiveness and grace that even covers us when we blow it like Peter. So let's keep looking to Jesus. He's the one who empowers us, strengthens us, forgives us, and let's do whatever we can just to say, hey, I want to live for you. I just want to love you. I want to love people and walk in your steps. Let's stand as we close together.
If uh, any of you need prayer after the service, um, Crystal's going to be up here. I'd be happy to pray with you, and uh, I'll be up here as well. And uh, you can just come up. We'd be happy to pray for you in any way that you need uh, prayer for. Otherwise, there's going to be a wedding here at 1230. You're welcome to stay around as Jerry and Paul get married. And otherwise, we will uh, see you next week. And let's close in prayer. Uh, God, we thank you for your all-encompassing forgiveness, grace that you shower upon us. God, I thank you that you never let us go, that you never leave us nor forsake us. God, that even when we are at our worst and, and we're falling and we've fallen apart, even like Peter, God, that you are the lifter of our head, that you keep calling us back into the place of strength and place of identity and a place, God, we, where we can have courage and, and just love you and love people. So God, would you go with us this week? Help us to walk in the strength of your spirit and love you and love people and see lives transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.